Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. There's this mistreatment of women uh, that has sort of happened throughout history that allows for, and it's justifiable that we have a relatively skeptical view on, let's say, things like hormone replacement therapy, right? Um, we've been given such false information for so many years around our reproductive cycle. And quite frankly, uh, with respect, there has been little to no hesitation uh, in women's medicine to cut things off, to cut things out. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today we are going to dive into hormone replacement therapy for women in their perimenopausal and more specifically in our menopausal years. This is probably one of the most common questions that I am asked. It's around bioidentical hormones. What's the difference between HRT and BHRT? And I thought in, in the best way that I can answer this is to give you a bit more of a thoughtful response. I think sometimes we really want to just jump to the finish line and we really want to understand, just tell me what hormone to take or tell me how much and tell me when and tell me what the supplement is. And I, we will absolutely talk about some of those considerations. Before we do though, I think it's important for every single woman that is listening to this episode and the men who love them, this also is for men as well, for you to understand the history of hormone replacement therapy, potentially how uh, the medical community has been led astray with some shoddy research and how those misconceptions still persist today. So if you are trying to have a conversation with your primary healthcare provider, with your endocrinologist, they may also still have some of this residue around HRT is bad, HRT is going to cause breast cancer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to dive into some of the definitions of menopause. I want to talk a little bit about estrogen. I want to talk about hormone replacement therapy, how that may be different than bioidenticals. And then what are some of the benefits of HRT? And then I also really want to dive into the women's health initiative. So this is the WHI is the um, is the abbreviated form. If you hear me saying WHI throughout the uh, podcast today, I'm referring to this uh, women's health initiative, which was a study that was published, uh, circa 2001, 2002, which was just, if, if there was in the history of science, uh, an embar an absolute failure and embarrassment of the scientific method, uh, it's not surprising that it had to do with women's medicine and women's health, but this would be it. And so I want to pick apart and explain to you where potentially maybe your primary healthcare provider or your specialist may have gone awry from this, I'm just going to call it what it is, is junk, junk science. So, all right. So let's tuck in 
Uh, let's talk into menopause and hormone replacement therapy. So we're going to talk a little bit about percentages and all of that. And wherever possible, I'm going to provide links for you uh, to arm you with information. If you want to do more reading, uh, one of my friends, uh, we were talking about how much, uh, how deep I want to dive into the science with you. And, and I feel like I always want to do, you know, if there's three categories, if it's like light roast, medium roast and dark roast, like I always want to do the dark roast, but I understand that some of you out there are just like, tell me that like TLDR, like too long, didn't read, like, tell me the summary. So I'm going to have a balancing act in my conversation with you today in terms of like light roast, medium roast, dark roast. And then for those of you hardcore science nerds, like myself who want to do more reading, I'll make sure that there's some links uh, in the show notes for you to continue on your geeky magic carpet ride. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about menopause in general. So the definition typically that's widely accepted, uh, that is menopause is a woman who is 45 years and older or older, uh, who has gone 12 consecutive months without a period. So as I've mentioned on the podcast before, this is a retroactive diagnosis. You only qualify, let's say for the diagnosis after it's happened. And one of the things I would like to dive into, and there's we have some guests coming up on the show in the coming months that are really going to OBGYNs and, and hormone uh, specialists who are going to be talking about hormone replacement therapy. And one of the things that I really want to highlight, double, double underline and highlight, is that menopause is not a disease, okay? Neither is perimenopause. It is a natural function of aging. And I think that there is a, we'll say, a healthy uh, and justified mistrust in the, uh, we'll call it the allopathic or sort of the traditional medical realm because women have been 
typically either forgotten about, not included, like we haven't been picked for the team, um, and uh, in many cases mutilated. So we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about that um, as well. So for women in menopause, hormone uh, female hormones decline rapidly. It's not gradual in the way that our male counterparts. You know, if our if our men are going through andropause or menopause, as it's sometimes called, which I think is a funny name, they have sort of a gradual decline, let's say, in testosterone or androgens generally, whereas females go through a rapid decline. It is a rapid decline in our sex hormones. So primarily, um, we see a rapid decline in estrogen. Progesterone tends to creep, so she tends to go. Uh, we tend to see progesterone decreasing slowly. But estrogen, when we are um, moving into menopause in the year or so, let's say before uh, we qualify for that diagnosis, uh, very much a it jumps off a cliff. And I think that many women sort of understand inherently that yes, estrogen declines in menopause, that makes sense. Um, but estrogen plummets to like 1% of what it was before menopause. So if you've ever seen like a Mission Impossible movie and you see Tom Cruise sort of riding his bike like off of a cliff, that's kind of what happens in menopause. It's like we are just, we we gun it and then we just fall off the cliff. The bike is destroyed. And then hopefully like Tom Cruise, we find a way to land um, on our two feet. But that's kind of when I think about estrogen, that's sort of what I, what I envision. It's like, it, you don't just gradually decline with estrogen, um, it, it falls off a cliff. And I think that many of the symptoms that women have, and we're going to talk a little bit about this today, like depression, and uh, we see weight distribution, and we see, uh, you know, uh, sleep disturbances and all hot flashes and all these kinds of things. Many times women will save for the hot flashes, maybe, but the mood and affect the weight distribution, a lot of times women will sort of attribute that to like a midlife crisis or uh, the kids are growing up and maybe there's some grieving that happens with the children growing up or there's a sort of new, there's some newfound freedom that maybe you are ready for or not ready for. Um, and so I think that we also want to be thinking about as women that this is some of these um, traditional symptoms that we may be experiencing can also be in part due to an estrogen depletion, right? Or an estrogen, um, uh, we have absolutely, you know, 99% in many cases, uh, less estrogen than we had prior to going through menopause. And so when we are trying to define clinically, or maybe even from labs, what are some of the things that we look for um, to to define menopause? So one of them, as we mentioned, is 12 consecutive months without, without a bleed. When we also look on our labs, there's some other telltale signs as well. So some of our sex hormones, not surprisingly, change. So uh, uh, follicular stimulating hormone or FSH. Typically, when we are looking at FSH, we test it. We like to test it on day two or three of the cycle. So like day two, when you are uh, in your fertile years, even in, in perimenopause, typically we want to be testing FSH day two or three of the cycle. So like the second or third day that you're bleeding. And most people are going to accept that somewhere between, you know, five and 20 um, IUs per milliliter is normal. Okay. I would say, uh, because I like values a little tighter, um, any FSH level that is above, call it 10 to 12. So I like that. So normally, you know, five to 20 IUs per mil is is typically considered like air quotes here, normal. I kind of like it a little tighter. I like it between 10 and 12. Um, when we start to see levels above 12, this is sort of an early indication that your ovaries may be starting to fail. Levels above 30 or 40 um, are usually taken to signal uh, menopause, or if you're under 45, uh, that can also signal um, primary ovarian uh, insufficiency or failure as well. And you may even still be getting, if you're in your 40s, you may still even be getting periods with your FSH levels this high, but it is still a sign that your body is not producing enough estrogen to maintain regular ovarian function. 
Okay. So we see FSH change. Another lab that we might explore is luteinizing hormone or LH. Again, we will test it on the same day, uh, same time that we are going to look at FSH and it's going to be day two or three of the cycle. So the day that you go in for the, you know, the day that you go in for the blood draw, you're going to make sure that FSH and LH is ticked off on your, on your blood rec. Um, and again, same kind of labs, right? So anywhere between five and 20, uh, micro international units per milliliter is going to be kind of the range. And typically I'll say, you know, when, uh, when I'm speaking to healthcare practitioners and we're sort of looking at an ideal ratio between FSH and LH, we kind of want a one-to-one ratio. So we sort of want about the same amount of FSH to LH uh, in, uh, on, you know, tested on day two or three of the female cycle as a indication that everything is sort of working the way that it is. And of course, those numbers, when we have that one-to-one ratio, we also want it to be, um, under, t- under 20, but really like under, like under like 10 to 12 is sort of the, the, the number that I like. So, um, some of the other things that can also change um, for a woman in menopause is not just her sex hormones. We know that her, th- like we often see thyroid, we start to see the thyroid going a little bit kaput as well. I've talked a lot about thyroid on the show and I've had lots of experts um, on the show talking about thyroid, hypothyroid in particular. Um, but typically what we see, and of course, thyroid is very much involved in metabolism and energy production, which is why a lot of women in their 40s and 50s feel just completely bagged. Um, So often for a woman in, call it menopause, we're going to start to see things like her free T4 and her free T3 starting to um, get higher than it should. Usually with free T4, I I really tend to like an optimal range of like one to two or one to 1.5 nanograms per deciliter, sort of the number that I like. Usually on a lab, you might see anything from 0.8 to 1.8 or even up to two, Um, but typically one to 1.5. I sort of like a little bit of a tighter range with free T4. And then same thing with uh, free T3. So a lab range, and of course it's going to vary based on where you live, you might see anywhere between 2.3 to 4.2 picograms uh, per milliliter. I typically like it three to four. So I like it usually on the higher side of that sort of normal range. So again, just to repeat in case you don't have to press the rewind button a few times, so optimal range for free T4, 1 to 1.5 nanograms per deciliter, and for free T3, 3 to 4, okay, 3 to 4 picograms per milliliter. Uh, The other hormone I'll touch on uh, that we often see uh, going awry in menopause is insulin. This is, of course, this is talked about in many aspects of uh, of life, particularly with, you know, metabolic health. Uh, and we're going to, as you'll see, we'll talk about this as well when we talk about brain health, but usually most people are going to, uh, you know, most people are going to consider a two to 20, a, a number of two to 20 as normal. And I reject that. I do like, uh, I do like a fasted insulin um, number under, under 10. If, like ideally, like five to seven would be great, but I understand that not everybody's going to fit into that into that box. Uh, there are some individuals that, um, no matter what you do with them, their fasting insulin is just going to be higher. So that's a, and that's a there's a variety of uh, reasons for that. But insulin is something that we also want to be thinking about in menopause. It is one of the primary metabolic hormones. Certainly, it is going to um, it's involved in bringing, of course. Uh, plasma glucose or blood glucose into the cell. Um, and of course, when we have too much uh, insulin, when the beta cells of the pancreas are overcorrecting, either for too much blood, you know, maybe a postprandial or post meal um, spike in blood sugar, um, what we might see, of course, systemically is that um, cells sort of throughout the body are going to become more insulin resistant. So they're going to be less likely to listen to the signal of insulin, which of course starts this sort of vicious cycle of more output of insulin in order to kind of get the job done. Okay. So these are some of the hormones that might, that we might, uh, and of course I'm not, these are not all of the hormones, but these are some of the primary ones that we will see, uh, again, same, you know, as a pair to, even though it's not a hormone, uh, glucose, we will see, uh, of course, 
increase. We typically see fasting glucose starting to creep up uh, in our 40s and our 50s as well. So we're going to talk about how we might counteract that. If you um, had an opportunity to listen to my conversation with uh, Dr. Ben Bickman, he's been on the show, uh, I believe twice. I believe the last time that he was on the show, one of the things that he said, and this will sort of uh, build a bridge for my conversation around hormone replacement therapy, is that women prior to menopause are kind of like metabolic superheroes. I'm paraphrasing this and we'll link the conversation uh, around uh, estrogen and Ben Bickman in, in the show notes. But prior to menopause, under the influence of estrogen, we there's so many cardioprotective, we have, you know, we have all this cardioprotective, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll say it, estrogen is cardioprotective. So um, this is part of the reason why the typical average age of onset for women and cardiovascular disease is much later than it is for our male counterparts it's because they don't have that cardioprotective effect that est- that estrogen um, provides us. So great conversation with Ben. That would be uh, Dr. Bickman. So that would be a wonderful uh, conversation for you to review if you so choose. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about why you or your doctor um, or whoever you talk to about hormones may have potentially a skewed um, view on HRT and where it comes from. And hopefully this is going to arm you with either some talking points, uh, there'll be some research for you to be able to um, to review and print out if you'd like. And um, we'll try to we'll try to do a, a TLDR, a too long didn't read <laughs> summary of this conversation as well. All right, so let's talk about kind of the let's go back to the back to the start. Let's start at the um, start at the bottom, and now we're here. So the early history, let's say, of hormone replacement therapy started uh, with this book in the sixties. It was called Feminine Forever. You can still buy it on Amazon, unbelievably. And the book essentially um, advocated this idea that women should take estrogen forever. It's the fountain of youth, you know, that as the title suggests, you're going to be feminine forever. Um, and of course, we know that that's not true. <laughs> so, uh, and later we found out um, that this doctor uh, was, uh, he had conflicts of interest in writing the book. Uh, he was paid. Um, untold sums of money by the drug company who was making estrogen. Um, Where have we heard that before, ladies? Hmm. So there's the conflict of interest, but of course he has uh, some letters behind his name that give him sort of a cultural authority and, you know, off we went. So estrogen, and then of course this, what what we started seeing is just the application. So in the 70s, um, just the application of estrogen caused quite a bit of uterine cancer. So we'll, I'm going to just, I'm going to come back to that because what we know now, of course, is when we combine estrogen and progesterone, that sort of nullifies um, that risk. But I just, I want to get back to the, I don't want to get too far off topic. I want to talk a little bit about what we know about estrogen. So estrogen in and of itself is not bad, right? It can relieve and does relieve many of the symptoms of menopause. So it's not just the hot flashes. It's not just the night sweats, but the palpitations, like sometimes we often see in late perimenopause and into those uh, early menopausal years, heart palpitations. Uh, We start to see this aura of brain fog where you have no idea what you were saying, or you, you know, walk into a room, you have no idea why you're there. Um, depression, joint pain, muscle aches and pains. And I put this on my Instagram. Um, gosh, it must've been a couple, maybe it's a couple weeks ago, maybe months. Um, and I was talking about this, um, clip that I saw with Oprah Winfrey, and she was basically, uh, describing, that in her sort of perimenopausal and early menopausal years, I don't think she actually said the her actual age, but it was sort of in that perimenopausal time that she started experiencing lots and lots of palpitations. And she thought that she was having a heart attack. So of course she goes to her cardiologist who was female, by the way, and that's an important point. Um, and her, they ran all, you know, all the tests And I think they ended up putting her on a medication, which medication I can't recall. It might've been a statin. I don't, I don't recall what it was. It might've been a statin. I don't know if she mentioned uh, her cholesterol numbers, but her female cardiologist 
thought that she had a problem with her heart, right? So this, you know, atypical fibrillations or whatever, and put her on medication for it. It later became very obvious and very apparent that her heart her heart palpitations were part of a larger cluster of symptoms that are associated quite strongly with menopause. And I put this up on my Instagram because I thought it was a uh, something for all the women who are in their menopausal years to think about. So when we think about Oprah Winfrey, we think about wildly successful, um, rich beyond uh, most of our dreams. Um, and she has the access to resources that potentially you and I don't, right? So she has access to the best doctors, uh, medications, uh, facilities, etc. And my point with this post was if Oprah's doctor, Oprah's female doctor <laughs> missed it, what is the likelihood that your doctor is not quite getting the full picture because of their own biases and the way that they've been instructed in medical school and in their training. And this is part of the reason why I do the, why I produce this podcast is it's no longer a luxury for women to understand the signs and symptoms of perimenopause. It is a necessity. You need to also be an advocate for your health. You need a you need a physician who is going to advocate for you and has the ability and has the knowledge and the wherewithal to get their diagnosis right. But you also, as the patient, you also as the we'll say the the boss, if you will, of your healthcare business. If you if the, if healthcare was a business, you are the CEO. Let's say right, like you are the you are the boss. You have to also understand how things work. You may not necessarily need to know all the intricacies, right? So you can delegate that to your doctor or have a conversation with your doctor, but it is no longer a luxury for us to just sort of be, you know, delegating all of our, all of our health decisions to our doctors, because many times they don't know themselves. And I say that with love for all of my medical doctors who are my friends. I say that as a uh, as a healthcare practitioner myself, if I were to pretend that I know everything, like please stop listening to the show because I absolutely don't. Uh, and it would be hubris. It would be it would be beyond arrogant for anyone to think that they know it all. Um, and so it just just something just something for you to um, to gnaw on there. And. So we have this feminine forever. We have this sort of biased book that's written about estrogen. And I would say generally there is a, you know, I mentioned this uh, when we started recording that there is this mistreatment, this general, like a, there's this mistreatment of women uh, that has sort of happened throughout history that allows for, and it's justifiable that we have a relatively uh, skeptical view on let's say things like hormone replacement therapy, right? Um, we've been given such false information for so many years around our reproductive cycle. Um, and quite frankly, uh, with respect, there has been little to no hesitation uh, in women's medicine to cut things off, uh, to cut things out, uh, someone is going in for a hysterectomy, which is the removal of a uterus. Like, you know, we'll just clean up. We'll just like scrape out the ovaries anyway. It's not like they're, you know, doing anything for you anymore. Right. So, and I'm not saying that happens all the time. I'm not saying that don't write me any letters. Like that's not that doesn't happen all the time, but it's happened enough times that I have many members in my family where they've been treated that way. And they have gone along with it again, because of this cultural authority, uh, well, the doctor said so, the doctor must know best, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but just to contrast that, we don't see many scrotumectomies. I don't even think that's a word. I just made that up. Like, we don't see this sort of like, oh, well, let's just take it, let's just yank out the vast deference. Like, what do, you, what do you even need that for anyway? Or like, you know, we'll just take out your, your, your scrotum. Like, you don't need to produce any sperm now. You're 50. Like, who cares? Right. We don't, we don't see that with men. There's this this kind of if I may use the word mutilation would never be accepted. Never be accepted 
by men. And I say that again with love for uh, friends and colleagues of mine who are surgeons um, and and perform surgeries every day. But this kind of history in women's medicine is sort of where I'm coming from. And so when, with respect to hormone replacement therapy, I think that many women kind of believe that typically old women, let's say, die of heart disease and young women die of breast cancer. And both of those things are not, you know, when we when we add in hormones to the mix, both of those things are not great. However, uh, and this is where I kind of want to hone in on, which is this sort of breast cancer and heart disease argument. So often women will say that they don't want to take estrogen or they don't want to take hormones because estrogen causes breast cancer. And if I may um, provide you with some data, uh, and this is taken, part of this is taken from the CDC and a couple of studies, which I'll, I'm happy to link to. When we think about the risk of developing uh, breast cancer versus cardiovascular disease in women, um, with breast cancer, women have a one in eight chance or risk of developing breast cancer. That's about a 12%. Uh, risk of developing breast cancer. The lifetime risk for cardiovascular disease development is one in two. Like it's actually more than that. It's 56% of women have are at risk for developing cardiovascular disease. So put that in perspective, you and your neighbor or you and your best friend, if you just take a look to your right or your left, one of you is getting cardiovascular disease, right? 56% of women uh, will develop cardiovascular disease. So it's almost like it's not even a question of if, it's more of a question of when. And then when we, so risk of developing uh, cardiovascular disease orders of magnitude more than the risk of developing breast cancer. And then the risk of dying from either of those two diseases, when we look at um, breath, lifetime risk of dying, from breast cancer, it's one in 38, which is about a 2.6% chance. The risk of dying from cardiovascular disease is one in four, so 25%, right? So said another way, if you look at 2.6% and 25%, there's a tenfold difference between those two numbers. In other words, women are 10 times more likely to die from heart disease than they are from breast cancer. This doesn't mean that I'm saying breast cancer doesn't exist or that it's not important. Of course it is. However, the big pink elephant in the room is cardiovascular disease, right? 56% of women at risk for developing. And of those 56%, 25% are at risk for dying of CBD. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster, and of course, stress reduction. With the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna, it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Okay. Um, and the other thing that I would like you to just chew on in terms of estrogen and breast cancer is often, um, sometimes we think, you know, estrogen causes breast cancer. Typically what we see is the longer you live, the, the more likely you are to, uh, you know, die of some kind of disease, right? We do typically see more breast cancer diagnoses in an older female population than we do a younger one, typically. Um, even though there is a sort of preconceived notion that young women die of breast, breast cancer and older women die of, of heart disease. 
But if we think about the estrogen environment in an older woman versus a younger woman, it's a lower estrogen environment, right? If we are thinking about a 50 plus woman, she's likely in menopause, which means that she's now in a lower estrogen environment. And I don't, ne- I don't necessarily have an answer for why that is, um, but it's just, just an observation, right? Like breast cancer, um, if it is, if it is, uh, something that typically affects older women more frequently than younger women, then why is it that those, like those women have a lower estrogen environment? So it's something to, something that I think about, I don't have an answer to, maybe I'm missing something mechanistically there, but, um, you know, this blanket assumption that estrogen causes breast cancer, I don't think, I think it's a soundbite. I think there's new, I'll say it this way. I think it's a soundbite. I think that there's some nuance to, to that. Okay. So I mentioned before in the seventies, estrogen, you know, following this feminine forever book, estrogen was sort of like the, let's keep everybody young forever. Let's the fountain of youth and all this kind of stuff. Um, turns out that estrogen by itself does increase the risk of uterine cancer uh, by quite a bit. And estrogen by itself, if you are someone with a hysterectomy, seems to be okay. Uh, If you are someone who does have her uterus um, intact, what might be a better option for you potentially is estrogen and progesterone together because when we actually when we actually combine these things when we combine estrogen and progesterone that does seem to uh we'll say like they cancel each other out they almost nullify um the risk of of uterine cancer so this was kind of like the practice like estrogen and progesterone for for women with uh uterus uh, you know, they were, if they were going through uh, uteruses, what's the plural of uterus, uteri? Oh gosh, I don't know. Okay. So for women who have uteruses, we're just going to pretend that that's the plural and that's correct. Uh, progesterone and estrogen is a viable option. Obviously you have to talk to your primary healthcare provider about this, but that seems to be a viable option for women who are experiencing some of these symptoms of menopause, the palpitations, the hot flashes, the sleep disturbances, um, even things like, you know, we haven't talked about, um, uh, sexual dysfunction, but in a lower estrogen, uh, and testosterone really environment, uh, libido obviously drops, but also there's atrophy of the vaginal wall, the parental, all the sort of tissues in there that are highly vascularized. Um, so we start to see things like um, difficulty achieving orgasm, even anorgasmia or lack, like lack of an, of an ability to climax, which I think is, I think I should just mention is also an early signal or maybe an early indication that that process of CVD, that process of cardiovascular disease may be settling in. So we want, this is why for women, um, there's been some talked about men not orgasming all the time. Um, for women, let me just be, let me just be blunt here. You need to be coming as often as, as you can. (laughs) Okay. So whether that, however, however often it is like at a very minimum, ladies, we're going to talk about twice a week. That's like bare minimum. All right. So I, you know, in my last book I talked about in, in the Betty body, I talked about this orgasm challenge. Uh, if you, you know, have an orgasm every day for seven days, like just take a picture of your face, you know, at the beginning of that week, and then take a picture of your face at the end of the week, see how much better you look, right? Like, and it, it, there's cardiovascular benefits that as well, right? So there's like more perfusion in the capillaries and some of the highly vascularized areas in the body. Okay. So now we're at, so from the seventies, we sort of figured out estrogen or estrogen plus progesterone based on, you know, the patient, whether or not she had a, a uterus or not. And then we had the the Women's Health Initiative. Okay. Then we had this giant billion dollar um, study. And the WHI had basically two arms to it, right? So there's a nutritional part of the study. And then there was also a hormone replacement arm of the study. And I think that it's worth noting that even before they did the statistical analyses, that the it was really set up in my opinion uh, and that of many others uh to fail so when we look at the population of women who were selected for the hormone replacement arm of this whi the average age 
of the uh, patients selected were 63. Um, And while I love 63-year-olds, that is a full 10 years. Like the average age of menopause is about 51. So it's like 10 plus years after menopause. Okay. So uh, that's a problem. Most of them, I want to say, I have the data, I the data I believe was 70%, 60 to 70% of the participants were overweight or obese. So this was calculated using BMI, which I get is not the best, uh, we'll say, marker for whether someone is healthy or not, but it's a pretty good one. Like it tracks pretty well. Unless if you are a bodybuilder, what we often find is bodybuilders sort of show up as obese on these BMI scales because of the, you know, muscle weighs more than fat, right? So they will have really big quads, really big backs, really big glutes, really big, you know, all the muscles are really big. So their BMI tends to skew into the obese and sometimes even morbidly obese category. But for the rest of us non-bodybuilders, it's a pretty good, it's not the best, but it's a pretty good indication of whether or not you're healthy for your age and your height. So 70% calculated using BMI were considered overweight or obese. More than half of them were smokers. So, um, okay. So I, I don't mean to laugh. I no, I do mean to laugh because it's so like, how could you select some of the biggest cofactors for cardiovascular disease is age, whether or not you're a smoker, and whether or not you're obese. Those are the one, two, and three. But these participants had all of those, okay, in spades. So this is not, this was not a will say unbiased or ideal healthy sample of women in going through menopause by any means. And there's actually one more thing I'm going to tell you and you're you're going to you're going to you're going to almost not believe it uh when you hear it but they also excluded women who were symptomatic. <laughs> so Women who were experiencing hot flashes, women who were experiencing sleep disturbances, brain fog, affect changes, weight distribution, all these different things, they were excluded. So pardon my French, but how on earth, how on earth, and I say pardon my French because I speak French. I have a, I'm a Francophile. I have a love for the French culture and it's, I don't mean to insult any, I don't mean to insult any, um, any French speakers because I, I love you and I want to be you. But I mean, why, how are you going to evaluate whether or not hormone replacement therapy is effective at alleviating symptoms of menopause if you don't have the effing women who are symptomatic in the study? Okay. Okay. Bon, c'est bon. Okay. So that's my little, that's my Veronique. Okay. That's my French, my, my French coming out like, oh my God, what are we, what are you doing? Uh, and that if you're watching me on YouTube, my little Italian hands are sort of going, I have my little hands are all scrunched up and they're waving around. Uh, if you're listening to this on audio, just, I look like I'm swearing in Italian right now. Um, okay. So there's, so there's that. So they're running the study, they're running the study. And then prior to releasing the actual data, they stopped the study and they made this sort of rushed press release um, that says basically they have to stop this trial of estrogen because, uh, you know, estrogen and progestin, because that's what they were looking at um, because of an increased breast cancer risk. So they put out this like inflammatory, sensationalist, um, you know, uh, article, let's say, prior to the data being released, which I don't actually know of any other study that has, this is, this is incredibly bad form. Um, so I think it's almost, you know, akin to if you were, um, you know, you had a strategy for the game and, you know, you're, you're about to play a, you know, big soccer game and you're like, okay, this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to do it. And then you release you release your strategy 
um, to the public before you even play. So, I mean, there's no, I mean, maybe that's not the best, maybe that's not the best analogy, but this is like a scientific no-no. You don't release this sort of inflammatory, crazy headline without the actual data being released. And of course, in subsequent papers, which nobody read because it was like, you know, we can put things on the front page of the newspaper. And then, you know, four weeks later or six weeks later at the last page, there's like an addendum to, you know, what they, what they posted six weeks ago, like who cares at that point. Right. Um, of course, in later analyses, um, it was, it sort of came out that some of the, the way that these, um, the way that they had run their statistical analyses was very, very poor. So all that to say, not a fan of WHI, but the problem, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because this myth that HRT is inherently bad for women across the board uh, really needs to die. Um, maybe there can be some considerations for women who have had breast cancer, uh, in like have a previous history of breast cancer themselves. Like we can make an argument, um, that potentially estrogen, uh, and, and again, it depends on the breast cancer type. There's different types of, of, uh, of, of cancers, uh, but certainly depending on the, you can make an argument that maybe these individuals are not a candidate, but for everyone across the board, like get out of town, right? It is when we think about some of the benefits that HRT um, can provide, and when I say HRT, by the way, um, I mean both bioidentical and what we might call synthetic, okay? Bioidentical, just so we're clear, is still, it is bioidentical to estradiol, right? It is still manufactured in a pharmaceutical manufacturing facility somewhere, um, it is not being harvested from, um, I can't even, you know, my mind is going very dark. Like it's not, you know, like we're not, we don't have, you know, we're not harvesting this from women. Um, let's say this is a, it is a, um, bioidentical, we'll say it this way is a marketing term. Okay. So it is still, whether you get in a compounding pharmacy or you get a prescription from your medical doctor, it is still, um, it is just bioidentical to estrogen. Okay. But there are synthetic like Premarin, let's say progestin. These are synthetic form or like they're, they, they are doing their best to mimic, let's say, um, the hormones that we produce. And so I prefer the I'll use the term bioidentical. I prefer bioidenticals to the synthetic version, but I still think that there is a time and a place if the bioidenticals aren't cutting it for you, we can move on to the synthetic hormones for sure. So let's talk about some of the benefits that HRT, whether it's bioidenticals or synthetic, um, have. Um, so let's talk about osteoporosis. This is an area that I love to geek out on. I spent many, many years uh, in private practice dealing with uh, men and women, but primarily women, uh, dealing with either osteopenia, which is the beginning phases of osteoporosis, and then the full-blown disease, which is osteoporosis. So when we are looking at osteoporosis, this is basically a fragility um, of the bone. Um, oftentimes, it's evaluated using bone density testing, which is like not the best, but it's kind of what we got. Um, what we really... and of course, there's no test for this, but the the real the real sort of measure, let's say, the true test of uh, bone density is how flexible a bone is before it snaps. Now you can certainly imagine that there's going to be I don't know what intervention uh, we can we can do to to evaluate that, but that is that is um, offered the way that the flexibility of the bone is offered via two different types of bone. So the First is the cortical bone, which is the kind of outside of the bone. It's the if it's the skull, if you will, uh, of the bone. And then we also have cancellous bone, which is sort of the internal matrix or the internal bone structure. So if you were to ever look at an X-ray, or if you've ever just seen a picture of an X-ray, let's say of a long bone like a femur, when you look at that X-ray, you're going to see thin uh, white, or you sh it should be uh, like thin white lines on the outside of the bone. And then the inside part of the bone is kind of going to, it's going to be gray. Okay. That's actually the different, what you're viewing there is the difference between cortical and cancellous bone. Okay. 
Um, what we see in osteoporosis is not like the cortical bone itself will thin out. So usually a healthy bone has a nice thick cortex. So we have like the thick cortical bone on the perimeter, let's say of the bone. And then the cancellous bone, when we look at it, at least on x-ray is a uniform, like you're going to see some like black, it's going to be sort of gray and little speckles of black, um, and white, but you shouldn't see obvious lytic. You shouldn't see obvious sort of black circles in the bone. And I've seen far too many x-rays of osteoporotic women. And when we look at that cancellous bone or that internal matrix, that internal bone structure, it looks like I often liken it to like teenage acne or like Swiss cheese. It just, you have these really round black holes all through the bone. And it just looks like Swiss cheese or pockmarks, let's say, um, which indicates that the bone itself is very brittle. It's very fragile. So if it were to take impact, using the example of the femur, if you were to fall, let's say either falling forward or falling to the side, um, foosh injuries is what we call them in chiropractic school, fall on outstretched hand. That's Foosh, F-O-O-S-H. That's how we remember things is by making up these crazy acronyms. But if you have one of these falls, a brittle bone is not going to be able to bend enough to absorb the force that uh, has been imparted to it. And hence the crack, right? Hence the, hence the, um, hence the fracture. So current treatments for osteoporosis, if you've listened to this show long enough, you know that I'm a big advocate for nutritional and mechanical um, uh, reparation of the bone. So, you know, generally with nutrition, uh, we might be thinking about whole foods. We might thinking about adequate protein. Uh, we might thinking about, might be thinking about green leafy vegetables, et cetera. Um, I am a big, 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 huge fan of mechanical stimulus for, uh, for, and, and at the very minimum, that would be weight bearing, like being able to bear one's weight. So standing up and for some women, uh, eighties and nineties, this is a task onto itself. Um, but moving along that sort of sliding scale, we would have weight bearing at the bottom of the scale and moving all the way up that scale would be things like walking and then things like um, uh, Pilates and yoga. And so where you're weight bearing in different, uh, let's say uh, you're holding positions for an extended period of time. So these isometric contractions of the muscle, which of course, every time a muscle is contracting, you're pulling on the bone and you're stimulating through a variety of um, factors like fibroblastic growth factor and others to drive up bone density. Um, so all the way up to resistance training, like resistance training is the, ah, you know, it's like the, <laughs> that was my little angel <laughs> noise. Uh, you know, the, the clouds parting, you know, kind of, uh, uh, best form of treatment in my opinion, if the patient is able to, in terms of combating and in many times reversing, um, osteoporotic bone. In terms of more, let's say, traditional therapies, we see calcium and, and vitamin D being used as well in terms of supplementation. Um, calcium and vitamin D are good. Um, however, uh, I will say that they typically only help with that cortical bone. They're typically only going to help with that outer shell, if you will, of the bone. So it's going to help drive cortical thickness, but it's going to really do nothing to that cancellous bone or that internal matrix um, of the bone, which is super important. So, uh, and then the other thing of course, as well is calcium supplementation. I'm just going to be honest, not a fan um, because it's often taken by itself. It's not paired with something like magnesium or um, other minerals. And what ends up happening uh, when we are supplementing with calcium let's say it's a, you know, whatever supplement you're taking, uh, it can be associated with calcium deposits in the artery, which is no bueno. Okay. So I don't like calcium supplementation kind of at all. Uh, I do like vitamin D when it is paired with K2. So I don't like vitamin D by itself. I like vitamin D to be supplemented with K2, partly because K2 is this beautiful, vitamin that also stimulates osteoblasts. So that's blasts with a B. Um, and osteoblasts are the bones of the cell that drive bone growth. So they are actually causing more bone growth, which is actually what you need when you are osteopenic or parotic. 
So we have some supplementation, which is like, okay, calcium's in my book, I don't like it, but I know it's still prescribed. Um, vitamin D is good uh, if we are pairing it with a K2, usually a minimum dosage that I'd like to see. Uh, it depends on the patient, but typically I like to see something around at least, gosh, at least a thousand uh, I use daily, but you can go out in the morning when the sun is still kind of low and get some beautiful vitamin D naturally on the skin. That is the best form of vitamin D. Um, or if you are taking it in supplement form, uh, if you know that you have osteopenic or parotic bones, I'd say a minimum of 4,000 I use, but again, check with your, check with your doctor to see what's right for you. Other things that are used for osteoporosis, something called bisphosphonates. You may have heard of this, this intervention. They do help prevent hip fractures, actually almost as well as estrogen does. I'm going to make a case for estrogen in just a moment. But the problem with these bubbies is that if you take them longer than five years, you are now increasing your risk for other atypical fractures uh, in long bones. So in the femur, I know we've been using the femur as an example. Um, what we actually see in the femur is we see cracks in the um, in the in the femoral shaft. So this is like an atypical femoral fracture. We typically don't fracture in the shaft of the femur, um, and so this is kind of like a, one might say like a temporary solution. Like if you are unable, let's say to do any weight bearing activity, um, for whatever reason, this might be a good prophylactic, but you only are really able to use it for five years. And hopefully in that five year span, your doctor and your adjunct therapists are getting you weight bearing, getting you, um, you know, to drive that mechanical stimulus of the bone. There's some other things like we were talking about the vitamin D with the K2, et cetera. Um, and then there's estrogen. We, when we think about estrogen, um, you can take it as long as you like. When it comes to osteoporosis, there's no, um, you know, like bisphosphonates, we don't have this sort of five-year limit on it. Um, and studies have shown that we can reduce hip fractures and fractures in general under the use of, with the use of estrogen by up to 50%. I think those are, I think that's a good number. So I'm a, I'm a fan, um, for women in menopause, you got to be lifting weights. You got to be having your protein. Maybe you're supplementing with vitamin D and K2. And maybe if that's not enough, like if your bone density is still coming back, like pretty frail, maybe we want to also be thinking about some of the benefits that estrogen can have on our overall bone density, right? Cause estrogen is not just going to work on the cortical bone. It's going to work on cortical and cancellous bone together. Uh, so that elasticity, if you will, um, which is imparted largely from the cancellous bone is going to be um, preserved. Okay. So we have bone health with HRT. Let's talk about brains. Okay. So let's talk about our brain benefits. Um, for women, again, when we move through um, menopause and then beyond, of course, we know that um, the risk of, I mean, many women already are complaining in those perimenopausal and menopausal years of uh, of cognitive deficits. So that brain fog, memory issues, short-term intermediate, and sometimes long-term as well. And I've had many conversations with Dr. Dale Bredesen, who's coming back on the show. Um, we're going to be talking more about Alzheimer's uh, in the coming months, but we know that for women, we are diagnosed, I believe it's eight to 10 times. I have to fact check myself there, but I'm pretty sure it's eight to 10 times more frequently than our male counterparts. Okay. So it is some, it is primarily a female driven disease. And when we think about death, you know, women are again, two times more likely to die of Alzheimer's than our beautiful men. Right. So this is a, this is a female driven, um, disease. And if I can compare this, um, when we, when we think about the, the protective effects, let's say, uh, on the brain and potentially prevention, uh, of Alzheimer's, um, and I'm going to compare this to breast cancer because I just, uh, I think it's important. So every woman diagnosed over 60 with breast cancer for every one woman who is over 60 diagnosed with breast cancer, two women are diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So there's a, so we have two times more, uh, women being diagnosed with Alzheimer's than we do with breast cancer. And if you catch breast, if you catch the cancer early, um, 
we know that approximately the cure rate, right? If we are diagnosing the breast cancer early is pretty high. It's in the 80 to 90%, depending again, depending on the type of cancer uh, stage, et cetera. But usually when we are catching breast cancer, it's usually in early stages and the uh, prognosis is around 90%. The cure rate for Alzheimer's currently is zero right? We don't have a cure for Alzheimer's. There have been many a trial, many a drug. Uh, there is nothing that we have right now that cures Alzheimer's. Uh, there is no treatment for Alzheimer's. There are treatments for breast cancer. So estrogen potentially can help, potentially um, can help reduce the incidence of Alzheimer's. Um, and depending on what study you look at, that number is is not nothing. Like it's twenty to fifty percent, depending on kind of which study you're you're looking at. So again, if you are someone who is looking to, if you have some of these clinical signs and symptoms of menopause, like the hot flashes, like we were talking about, the heart, the heart palpitations, the mood and affect, the weight distribution, all of these different things that are happening to you, there are other benefits that you can also um, be that you can profit from through estrogen therapy. And it's usually for most women, it's going to be estrogen and progesterone or progestin, depending on what, you know, if it's bioidentical or not. A few other things I, I want to just highlight here in terms of benefits, different cancers. So colon cancer. So I know we've been talking about breast cancer a lot. Um, colon cancer is more lethal than breast cancer. And so when we think about uh, estrogen therapy, there've been a number of studies that have actually demonstrated, again, HRT, so the proper HRT for you, um, we can see that estrogen protects against the growth of cancerous cells in the colon. So there's a there's a study that I'll link to in the show notes. It's called it was called the Nurses Health Study. Uh, Twenty to twenty five percent decreased risk of colon cancer among women who are taking estrogen versus those who were not. I can't tell you mechanistically why that is. I don't think anybody knows at this point, um, but it is something that I feel is statistically significant to um, to bring up. Okay. So who should take HRT? Uh, is it safe for older women to take HRT? These are all questions that I think first and foremost, this podcast, I am not diagnosing you. I'm not writing you a prescription. There's no doctor patient relationship here. I'm giving you the data. And my hope is that you're going to take this data and talk to your primary care provider and do what is right for you based on your, in, your bio individuality, your history, et cetera. But ideally, painting very broad strokes here. Uh, ideally, the you know the best time to start HRT is going to be around menopause when we start seeing some of these clinical signs and symptoms of discomfort. Right, so around the time of menopause and sort of like within the first, call it five to ten years of qualifying for that menopause um, diagnosis. Right. And of course, if you have sort of a pre-existing cardiovascular disease, th there is going to be, you know, there's sort of like a different category, let's say, uh, in terms of risk for you. But generally around the time of menopause, if you are an older woman, if you are 60 and you're like, I'm still dealing with this and I feel awful, um, that doesn't mean that you can't take it. That, you know, if you're 65 and you're still soaking the bed at night, let's say, um, what we, what it seems to, um, what we seem to observe is that when someone first starts taking hormone replacement therapy, so this is like the synthetics that I'm referring to, we typically see an increase in cardiovascular risk for about the first year of taking it. And then it sort of comes back down after that. So again, this is why you have to have a conversation with your uh, your GP, your primary healthcare provider around hormone replacement therapy to know whether or not it is um, appropriate for you. If you want to do more reading, so I'm going to link to some studies that I've been kind of referencing um, in this conversation with you, but a lot of this data I've taken from a book called Estrogen Matters. Uh, the authors are uh, Avering Blooming. I'm trying so hard not to mistake their spelling of their name and, and Carol Travis. So I will link an Amazon link, sort of a you know link for you to check out that book. It is a non-hysterical, we'll say it that way, um, or very 
very based. <laughs> Maybe that's a better way to say it because I don't like the word hysterical because it derives from the word uterus. Uh, so that, and that's actually what people would, you know, as a, it used to be sort of an, an insult, like you're hysterical, like it, all this insanity is coming from your uterus. So we're not going to say hysterical. I don't like that word. Um, we'll say a based and level discussion around the benefits of estrogen. Now that book does primarily talk about Premarin. Uh, it talks about synthetic hormones because we have quite a bit of data on Premarin. It's been around for 60 years, maybe even more than that now. Um, and the conclusions of the authors is it's generally safe, but it's not for everybody. Uh, and they do take apart the WHI, uh, the Women's Health Initiative, in in a very similar manner to the way that I've presented to you as well. So if you want to check that out and do more reading, maybe you can gift it to your GP for Christmas or something, uh, or just just leave it on her desk as as you're leaving her office or something like that. Um, but definitely worth uh, checking out for your own information. As I mentioned, it's not a luxury anymore to just you know. Um, delegate your health to your primary care provider and also understand that your primary health care provider may have bias, right? There may be some bias in his or her decision tree and the way that they're making decisions. And it may be based on some of this, some of this data that we've, that we've explored today. So, okay. I hope that you have found this helpful. And I'm, 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 I'm hoping that this is going to serve as one of many conversations that we have around hormones because hormones, particularly for women in perimenopause and menopause is so complex. Like even just the word hormones, it's like which hormones, like your sex hormones, your metabolic hormones, your thyroid hormones, like what, what are we talking about? So I want to take a measured approach and maybe this is the dark roast. Maybe this, maybe this um, conversation sort of falls somewhere between like medium roast and dark roast. If all my light roasters, if you're just like too long, didn't read, what should I do? Um, if that is something that you would like uh, sort of summaries for, that may be something that we might consider uh, creating for you in the future as well. So if you found this episode useful, please share it with other women that you know and love and you know would, who think might be open to hearing a conversation around hormone replacement therapy. Um, and please, as always, your feedback is always um, very much appreciated in terms of how you're finding the episodes, driving drivers for more content, all of that. Would love, love to hear how um, this is received, being received by you. So until next time, my friends, we will talk very soon. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 